Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Aron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking sleep science and sleep disorders with Dr. Richard Liu. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 134 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we are joined with Dr. Richard Liu, who is a neurologist who specializes in sleep medicine. He did his fellowship at Harvard University in sleep medicine. He's also a staff neurologist and sleep physician at Markham Stufill. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, hospital in Canada, and an adjunct assistant clinical professor at the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Richard Liu, what's going on? How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Yeah, I appreciate having you on the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. And this is a topic that Nicole and I have talked about doing for a while. So I really appreciate um, shout out to Erica for connecting yes. us and getting this <laughs> podcast done. Uh, I guess we'll start with, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and what it is exactly that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess for me, sleep medicine actually all started when I was doing my residency in neurology at Queen's University. Uh, like when I was a resident doctor, there's a lot of things in neurology that really fascinated me. So it's a bit of like a kid in the candy store. Um, so I had an amazing program director. Uh, her name is Lisa Lomax. She really encouraged me to sort of explore all different aspects of neurology. So I ended up spending a month with this brilliant sleep neurologist named Brian Murray in uh, downtown Toronto, Sunnybrook. And uh, just seeing the pathology of the different sleep medicine cases coming through his clinic was just extremely fascinating for me. And on top of that, as you guys can imagine, and if you guys know anybody who has a really bad sleeping disorder, that patients with a bad sleeping disorder, they're very miserable, right? Because often they have a lot of personal family responsibilities and they're trying to carry all this load while having this terrible sleep day after day. You know, and for me, I remember when I was a resident, uh, Dr. Murray would often look at these patients and look at them in the eye and say, you know, I can make you feel better. And to me, that meant so much because surely enough, in a couple of months, these people come back and it really changes their life. And all of a sudden, you know, they can go home, spend more time with their kids, they're doing better at work. And I've really taken that approach to my own practice now in that I look at my patients and I tell them that I can make them feel better. Um, and, you know, I will also admit uh, on the air that um, I myself also have some sleeping issues. <laughs> So really, that one month working with Dr. Murray, I learned so much about sleep medicine, even with that one month that I started just sleeping better. And what I really realized that a lot of the things that we do, if we understand why we're doing it, having this knowledge can greatly improve the way we sleep. And even when we tell our patients to do certain things, unless we actually explain to them why they, that, they should actually be doing that, right? often it's a lot harder for them to adhere to sort of these recommendations that actually make the changes that will ultimately change their and improve their sleep. 
So basically, Dr. Murray did his training at Harvard. Uh, so he recommended I did the same. So I did that. Uh, and of course, you know, as you guys know, Boston is absolutely amazing city. Uh, I definitely have a very special place in my heart. Uh, and the people that I worked uh, with uh, in Boston, you know, Dr. Thomas, uh, Eric Heckman, Tom Scammell, uh, Judith Owens, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, these sleep physicians are just absolutely wonderful human beings. They're so passionate about sleep medicine. I think yet, you know, the irony is that they work so hard, they work sleeplessly. So one of the things that we used to do in Boston, well, you know, now that I'm no longer a fellow, I'm not doing that anymore, but it's still going on. It's what we call the MD titration nights. So we would stay up all night at the sleep lab watching the patients sleep. These are the patients with the most complex sleep disorders. Sleeping in the sleep lab, but we you know, will basically be up till like seven or eight o'clock in the morning uh, watching them sleep and actually try to tweak you know, the different pressure that they need on their CPAP or BiPAP machines, things like that. So at this time, I'm uh, essentially working in Ontario. I do, uh, my practice is half neurology, I half sleep medicine. Uh, and yeah, so basically, you know, the goal is to try to help people sleep better one night at a time. All right, good stuff. Does sleep medicine generally fall under the neurology umbrella? Is that how that works? Uh, that's a really good question. So sleep medicine is very complex in the sense that it's a collaboration between multiple specialties, right? Because if you think about it, you know, we need our brain to sleep, right? There's a psychology, psychiatry part. We need our mind to sleep and we need our lung, our breathing to sleep, right? So sleep medicine is really a combination of sort of the neurologist, the psychologist, the uh, respirologist or the pulmonologist in the States uh, um, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, ENT, the uh, ear, nose, throat doctors, you know, pediatrics. So really, it's a big collaboration between multiple fields that we work together. So is uh, cardio, is that part of the equation too? Because we're, and we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about I know sleep you're apnea. getting to all my questions. But I know <laughs> I know that, um, you know, there's some cardiovascular implications with certain uh, sleep disorders, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, really we're seeing that in most sleep disorder now, essentially, you know, if you don't sleep well, things like sleep apnea, insomnia, there's a major bi-directional relationship with a lot of cardiovascular disorders for sure. So. Yeah. And I think that it's, I think this is a super important uh, topic because I think when it comes to health and wellness, I think sleep is the number one thing that people neglect. And I think it's one of the most important things that people need to focus on. I would say arguably even above nutrition, I think sleep is really up there in terms of the pinnacle of what people should be focusing on for general health and wellness and longevity. Uh, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, because if we think about it, we spend a third of our lives sleeping, right? And sleep is, you know, super important, as you guys know, in the nutritional and, uh, you know, wellness and the fitness field that is good for recovery, it's good for muscle building, you know, muscle memory. Uh, and certainly, you know, just as simply as to put it, like when patients don't sleep well, they don't feel well, right? So next thing you know, you know, everything sort of just does not work as well the next day. And certainly, again, you know, we're seeing so much out in the literature now, you know, about the bi-directional relationship between medical disorders, cardiovascular disorders, and, and of course, psychiatric disorders as well. So... So I guess where I want to go is I want to talk a little bit about sleep, what happens while you're sleeping, what sleep cycles are, 
what it means to have a circadian rhythm and like kind of like going through the stages of sleep and and what's actually happening to the body in those stages. Can you talk about that and elaborate a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so maybe I, would you like me to start with circadian rhythm first? Yeah, sure. Wherever okay, you want to so, start. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So um, with circadian rhythm, so this is essentially our body's function, right? Our physiology and our behavior that synchronizes with a 24-hour light-dark cycle, which is essentially a spin of the earth, right? Because that takes 24 hours. Uh, and the idea is, is that our function and our behavior changes depending on light or, uh, or dark and depending on what time it is during the day. And we actually see this now that it's not just one part of our body. In fact, every cell in our body has a mini clock. That the function of every cell in our body actually has this intrinsic in tune sync with this 24 hour cycle. And of course, in all of us, there's this master clock. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So essentially, that's this one part in our brain that's kind of like the, the master ring, the ring that rules them all. So essentially, it entunes and it syncs every other tiny clock in your body. But of course, for all of us, you know, we don't all have the perfect 24-hour rhythm, right? In fact, the average rhythm is 24.3 hours. And we're all kind of on this bell curve. Some of us are a little bit more. Some of us are a little bit less. And the idea is that we need something, something to keep us in check within this 24 hours. And what that is, is light. Light keeps us synced to this 24 hours. Otherwise, over time, we'll all slightly go over or go uh, under. Um, so essentially how this works is that every day you wake up, you see the light. The light keeps you in check or entrained to the 24-hour circadian clock. And the light activates this nucleus, this master clock, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and makes you awake. When light goes away in the evening, that's when melatonin comes in. That's our second largest driver, light being the largest driver. So when that's why it's called dim light melatonin onset. When the light is dim, melatonin comes in, and melatonin actually suppresses this master clock, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, it suppresses this wake, wakening function, and that's when we become sleepy. Um, and of course, the other thing that drives us is this thing called the homeostatic clock. So what that basically is essentially equation that the longer that you stay awake, the more sleepy you get. So the simple idea of thinking of the, about this is kind of like the longer that you're awake, you have more brain waste that accumulates, and that just makes you more sleepy. And of course, one of the major molecules is adenosine, something that, as we all know, coffee blocks, right? So coffee gives us this artificial sense of being more awake. And as we stay up longer, this, these weights accumulate. And when we fall asleep, sort of these weights get cleaned up by our brain. This also kind of explains why we have a second wave. If you pull all-nighter, right, around sort of the time bedtime, you get really, really sleepy. But then next morning at like six or seven o'clock when you're supposed to wake up, you get a second wave, right? Because your homeostatic clock, even though it's accumulating more and more waste, your circadian clock's now saying you should actually be awake, right? So these are sort of the two simultaneous drives that essentially give you the circadian rhythm. So that's like when you pull an all-nighter and you kind of just feel wired in the morning and you're like, ah, oh, I should oh. be sleeping. I should be tired right now. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So circadian rhythms. 
Uh, really important. And you mentioned light and exposure to light. So does that mean that, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but does that mean that, you know, the lights in, how does the light in the house affect us versus the sunlight? Is it different? Is it less? Like what's the deal there? Oh, that's a really good question. I think to the most part, the light is really about the amount of lux, about how bright basically the light is. Right. So there's a lot of research essentially looking at when the light exposure is to your brain or to your eyes and how much and the duration of the light exposure. Right. And the idea is that there are certain times during the day that the light exposure essentially affects your circadian rhythm more, other times much less. So I guess a really the easiest way sort of to, I guess, conceptualize this is really take an example. So sort of the most common thing that we see is really, you know, like teenagers that are circadian delayed, right? So the idea is that, you know, they want to go to bed late and they want to wake up late, right? So if you try to make them go to bed earlier, they really have trouble falling asleep. Or even if they do, the sleep is very fragmented. So it's not that they have insomnia because insomnia is often, and of course we'll talk about this later, can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep and wake up too early. With sort of teenagers... They just want to go to bed later and they actually want to wake up later because they actually sleep at that schedule that their brain tells them they should actually be sleeping, then they're actually fine. So with certain individuals, such as this example, is that their eyes just are much more sensitive to that light. So light pushes back their circadian rhythm a lot more than somebody who does not have a delayed phase problem, right? So basically, let's say during the day, Often the light doesn't really affect you, but really in the evenings, there's essentially these critical periods of time, what's called a phase response curve. At what phase during the 24-hour period are light most responsive, either pushing your circadian rhythm one way or the other? So for somebody who's vulnerable to being very delayed in the evening, that light could be much, much more problematic. And of course, for these, interestingly, actually, for these... Uh, teenagers that are very circadian delayed, you know, re, uh, new research that's came out in the last couple of years has actually shown that not only are their eyes more sensitive to light before going to bed, paradoxically in the morning, their eyes are actually less sensitive to light in the morning, which further means that you really have to give them a lot of bright light in the morning because a little bit of light that helps an you know, average person sort of tell them it's morning, now your brain can wake up. For these teenagers, it does not work as well. Wow, that's interesting. That is so interesting with all of my youth athletes. So talk to us a little bit about the sleep cycles and what's going on when you're sleeping, all the sleep waves and things like that. That's actually something that I really know very little about. So I'm intrigued to find out. So the idea is that when we go to sleep, sleep has essentially di different stages or different phases. So broadly speaking, when we divide sleep, there are two broad divisions. One is called REM sleep. So this stands for rapid eye movements. And the other is called non-REM sleep. So anytime there's no rapid eye movements. So in non-REM sleep, they're divided into three stages. So the idea is that the stage one is kind of like light uh, sleep, stage two being intermediate, and stage three being deep non-REM sleep. So I'll start with sort of the REM. So the REM, uh, this was initially discovered because we noticed that people's eyes actually move from side to side during this uh, stage of sleep. 
So if you actually were to observe somebody, even though their eyelids are closed, sometimes you can actually see the eyeballs moving from side to side. During this stage of sleep, this is where people are often dreaming. Uh, your body's paralyzed. Otherwise, everybody would be acting out their dreams and kicking and punching their sleep. And of course, the idea is that, you know, perhaps, you know, you're recreating some of these scenarios in your brain. You know, there's theories that maybe we're almost like rewatching the TV of what we live through during the day kind of thing. And of course, so, so during this stage of sleep, when we're talking about brainwaves, often the brainwaves are actually very active, almost look like the person's awake when you look, put the electrodes in somebody's brain. Whereas on the other hand, with non-REM sleep, as I mentioned, there's sort of uh, different stages. And as you go to deeper and deeper sleep, the idea is that, you know, perhaps this is where the brainwaves are very synchronized now. So when you put the electrical lease on somebody's brain, the brainwaves are very slow and they're very high. The amplitudes are very high. And the thoughts that perhaps, you know, these, uh, this stage may have sort of different implications. So for, for example, things like growth hormones are actually most uh, secreted during non-REM sleep. Other things such as, you know, your heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, they seem to dip the most during this non-REM deep sleep N3 stage where the idea is that perhaps this is a stage where you have a lot of parasympathetic activation, that you, this is where perhaps you get most of the restfulness. And of course, you know, we also know that uh, in some recent literature that there's this idea of a glymphatic system. This is sort of the brain sewage system for waste removal. And again, the idea is that this deep sleep, this glymphatic system is when it's most active. And so the thought is that perhaps you have very fragmented deep sleep, deep N3 non-REM sleep, that you may be at higher risk of things like dementia and uh, neurocognitive disorders. Wow, that's interesting. Do we know why the, um, like, is there a reason why our eyes move rapidly while we sleep? Like, is there a purpose for that? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's a really good question. And, you know, and I think like a lot of questions uh, in sleep medicine, we really don't know. Like the brain is kind of a black box in sleep. You know, and, and you know, even sort of prior to this uh, interview, I was kind of thinking about sort of what is all the purpose of sleep. And I think for the large part, we really don't know a lot of sort of why the brain waves look the way they do and sort of the purpose of most of uh, sleep stages. Uh, other than that, you know, we see that if one sleep stage seems to be, you know, impaired, that we sort of start seeing all these pathologies uh, and these diseases. So, yeah, to your answer, I don't think we know. I mean, certainly there are thoughts that maybe, again, it's like you're you're almost like watching TV in your sleep kind of thing of like, you know, the memory that's kind of happened during the day. But yeah, truthfully, I, I don't, to my knowledge, sort of know exactly why that happens. So. so you ask why the eyes move. And I was wondering why the body doesn't. Like what's when you said probably like, the say body's don't almost... punch somebody in the face. Well, yeah, but <laughs> true. But one moves and one doesn't. What's the difference? Yeah, so basically the body doesn't, uh, sort of the, from the neurobiology side, that's because sort of from top down in your brainstem, you essentially send out these sort of neural signals and inhibit your spinal cord motor neurons, right? So you inhibit mm -hmm. so your spine, spinal cord from moving, uh, causing your arms and legs to move. Uh, but certainly, you know, if anybody, you know, that's listening to this has ever had sleep paralysis, or if you guys ever have sleep paralysis, where you kind of wake up, where your brain's awake, but your body's yes. not. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's it's kind of freaky because A, 
your eyes are allowed to move because sleep paralysis is kind of like you're in this half state of being a REM sleep, yet your brain is awake. You're kind of waking up with a boundary of sleep, REM sleep, and wakefulness, right? So two things you notice, one is that you could look around, but you can't do anything else. Other thing you feel like you're kind of suffocating because your diaphragm is not paralyzed, but your other accessory muscles of breathing is paralyzed. So often, this is why when you wake up from sleep paralysis, you know, for a couple of minutes, it's kind of scary. So, but yeah, so, but again, it, and the other thing I'll also add is that this is where we see, you know, when there are patients that have sort of some neurological condition, for example, Parkinson's disease, where there is a impairment of the brainstem, then there's a release of this mechanism of paralyzing somebody when they're asleep. That's when you get REM sleep behavior disorder where essentially where they're dreaming and it's almost all the time, but not 100% of the time, but most times always some kind of predatory dream. Every one of my patients tells me is either they're protecting somebody or they're running away from somebody um, that they'll have a dream and they're acting out their dream, right? They're kicking and I'm punching in their sleep um, because that inhibitory mechanism has been impaired by you know, neuro, uh, neurological diseases, things like Parkinson's disease. Wow. That's crazy. So it even affects your dreams, your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's gotta be because it's, it's something that's commonly seen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of while we're on the topic of, you know, Parkinson's being a disorder, let's go into, we talked about circadian rhythm. I want to talk a little bit about circadian rhythm disorder, what that is and what, what are some of the factors that contribute to that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, broadly speaking, circadian rhythm disorder, sort of the most two common things are circadian a delay. We see this in teenagers. They want to go to bed late. They want to wake up late. And circadian advance. We see this in uh, elderly patients. You know, they want to go to, you know, they want to stay up. Uh, uh, sorry, they want to go to bed uh, early and they wake up super early, unfortunately. So basically, a circadian disorders essentially when what your brain wants to do doesn't align with the social sort of activity that you want to do, right? As a result, you're sleeping off your circadian rhythm. You're sleeping off a time that your brain tells you you should either be awake or asleep. So as a result, a couple of things can happen. A, you can't fall asleep. It looks like insomnia, right? You see this in teenagers. You try to get them to go to bed early. They'll lie there, they'll stare at the ceiling. They can't fall asleep. Or even if they do fall asleep, they kind of very fragmented sleep. And even for people that's never experienced this, that they have the perfect circadian alignment, think about every time you go traveling. If you go to Italy, you're automatically circadian delayed, right? Automatically, you know, if you normally want to go to bed at like 10 o'clock, you're going to bed at 4 o'clock in the morning. If you go to Hawaii, you're automatically circadian advanced. So thinking about those traveling experiences, the first couple of days, doesn't matter what you do, sleep is going to be kind of off. So in broad strokes, that's essentially sort of the circadian disorder, the most common ones. And, and of course, you know, sort of really treating these circadian disorders is really try to help patients uh, essentially try to align their circadian rhythm. And of course, you guys probably heard of things like light therapy, right? Either giving bright light at certain times or dimming light at other times and things like very low dose of melatonin. So what you talked about melatonin, what's the deal with melatonin and high doses of melatonin? Because I see that a lot. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like I'm like, why is it even on the shelf? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think, you know, unfortunately, nowadays in society, uh, melatonin is kind of becoming like water. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it is everywhere, right? Um, so, you know, there, there's uh, a bunch of trials on this, uh, you know, like looking at doses in between one to like 80 milligrams, which is, you know, a freakly large amount of melatonin. So the major thing that melatonin does is actually adjusting for circadian rhythm. It's effect on sedation is actually mild. It's not a very strong hypnotic agent for like putting people to sleep. So generally speaking, I think within the sleep medicine community, and I'm sure, you know, there are people that may not agree with this, <laughs> but I, I think generally the thought is that it's an indication for circadian misalignment, that, but it's not really an indication of somebody just has insomnia. So, you know, and one common myth that people do is sort of take melatonin before you go to bed. But if you actually want to take for circadian misalignment, sort of, you know, often the practice is that you take it a couple hours before bed. So what I actually tell my patients that if desired bedtime, let's say is at 11 p.m., I tell them to take the melatonin two hours before bed. So you actually want to take it at 9 p.m. because that's sort of when the melatonin actually has the most effect on your brain because evolutionarily that's when dim light comes in and that's when your melatonin naturally should generate with dim light. And so about two to three hours before when you're actually supposed to sleep, melatonin actually has the most effect on you. That definitely makes sense to me. Now, I've also read that the average person, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, the average person makes about 300 micrograms of melatonin. And people are taking, you know, going back to the dosage, people are taking as high as 10 milligrams. And then I guess the other question that I would ask you is, would a, because of the way that that works, where you're saying you want to take it a few hours before, because you would theoretically start making it when the sun goes down, would you want to do a time release versus just a straight up melatonin? Oh, wow. Both very good questions. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I guess going, going back to the first question, sort of in terms of the dosing, right? I mean... Yeah, so basically, we actually look at the literature, sort of, the studies are mostly done at low dose melatonin for circadian rhythm, sort of the common uh, dose is actually like one milligram, right, some of them are 0 0.5, some of them are three milligrams. So when you look at circadian rhythm adjustment, no, nobody's using like 40 milligrams. <laughs> Right. And the other thing I'll also add is that so there's actually a paper uh, published a while back really comparing all the melatonin products over the counter. Right. So they compared 31 melatonin products. The problem with this is that because it's not regulated like a, a drug, essentially. Right. That, you know, there's massive amount of discrepancy between different products. So they've actually looked at sort of comparing what is indicated in terms of the amount of melatonin, what there actually is in the in the pill the range was 83% to 478%, right? Lots of them actually have contaminants. So serotonin being the biggest one, 26% of them would actually also have ser uh, serotonin. But so, like they actually so that's have... actually a major problem. Sorry? They actually have serotonin in them? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And how, what's the so, effects of that, of supplementing with serotonin? So, so the idea is that, you know, sometimes that can make you more sleepy, certainly as well, right? But the idea is that, you know, this is not pure melatonin that you're actually getting from exactly. a lot of these, you know, products. So, uh, so, so yeah, so basically, you know, no, to, absolutely to your point, right? So, I mean, certainly we do not need these whopping doses of 
melatonin and you know for sort of the purpose of circadian rhythm adjustment is actually a tiny dose so and even if they're utilize even if someone was taking melatonin if they're not adjusting their the rest of their sleep hygiene their their day-to-day bedtimes i don't know if i'm saying this right would it actually have an effect if they're taking it but then not adjusting their lifestyle oh i i totally agree with you because you know by far the largest driver for circadian rhythm is light. Yeah. Uh, you know, so by far, if you're not dimming light properly and you're just taking melatonin, I mean, you're kind of like, this is actually a much smaller thing, right? Certainly melatonin is helpful, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right, right? Light is by far the biggest driver, but of course there's other things you're doing before going to bed, you know, uh, that could certainly be very alerting as well. So if you just do this one thing, it's not going to change the rest of the boat. So yeah. <laughs> So real quick, I want to go back to the um, the dosing with the uh, uh, time release versus just a, re- a quick release. What what is your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, that that's a really good point. And truthfully, I'm not really sure if there's actually a major difference. Uh, if I, if anything, I would say, to my knowledge, I'm not sure in the literature would actually make too big of a difference because idea really is sort of you know, your response to melatonin actually is the highest, about two to three hours before desired bedtime. So the idea is that if you're adjusting to circadian rhythm, you would think actually that's when you probably want the most melatonin. But certainly though, melatonin does also have some sedating effects and actually does drive certain sleep stages. So, I mean, and the literature behind all this is actually really complex. So, you know, and again, sir, I don't mean to dodge this question, but going back to your question. I, I'm not actually quite sure if one is actually better than the other. So, gotcha. And then you mentioned the light that I wanted to get into next. So, exposure to light is obviously going to be a piece of the puzzle. What are your thoughts on blue light glasses and if they're effective? Yeah, amazing question. So, I talk to my patient about this all the time. The one thing I'll definitely say is that the blue light glasses, the ones that are completely clear with no tints in them, they do not work. The reason why this is, is because blue light certainly is the number one driver for our circadian rhythm. And the reason why it does that is that it drives it through this uh, cell in the back of our eye called the monopsin receptor. And this receptor has the highest affinity for blue light. But the problem is our rot and our cones, so these are the other cells in the back of our eye that looks at all the spectrum of light they also bind to this monopsin receptor. So you cannot just block blue light and assume this is work. You actually have to block all light with the emphasis on blue light. So basically I tell my patients, if you were to just buy those glasses that says they're a blue light blocker, but they're completely clear, they don't do anything. If you buy the one with the orange tints, they're certainly better because you're blocking with the emphasis on blue light, but just overall more light. If you buy the red ones, you definitely block blue and green light and just overall more light again. I mean, I also tell them you're kind of walking on a disco ball. I guess it takes a little bit of time to get used to. And, you know, and for patients that are very severe, you know, I tell them if you have to do what you got to do, you know, sunglasses certainly are the best, right? Because they just block everything. But then again, I always emphasize this to my patients. I'll definitely emphasize this to your listeners is that you have to do this in the context of being safe. Right. I don't want people to be sort of breaking glasses and walk the walls at home. And I tell, you know, because that that's a reality, because, you know, again, you know, 
uh, personally, I'm uh, delayed sleep phase, right? So I have some of these glasses and I've definitely broken things around my house. So, yeah, so really, you know, I think the answer is you want to block as much light as possible without sort of in the context of safe. And I'll just add one more point to this because I have my eMERGE doctor colleagues, my nursing colleagues, you know, they do a lot of shift work, right? So one day they're working during the day, you know, they, they get home and they, they go back, they go to sleep at like 11 o'clock. The next day, they do overnight shift. They get home at seven o'clock in the morning. And it's very reasonable that initially you're so amped up, you can't fall asleep right away. So, you know, so what I tell them is that, again, once you're at home in a safe like place, and you're not driving home, but you do this once you're home, <laughs> that you should actually just wear sunglasses, right? Because your brain is certainly not going to be able to flip circadian rhythm that fast because the brain human brain only does like an hour a day right but at least the two hours before you actually fall asleep once you get home have those sunglasses on that at least gives your brain some signal that okay maybe this might be dark maybe that might be sleep time and that'll still to some degree improve your sleep i have a buttload of questions now so i know me too <laughs> the first one Go i'm gonna ask you is uh TV. I feel like I have a marathon of questions. So the first one All I'm right, going to no. ask you is uh, TVs in the bedroom. Do we want to get rid of them? Do we want to keep them? What's the deal with that? Truth, uh, honest answer, definitely get rid of them. Okay. A couple of reasons, right? So one, the light. Light, light. light is a major thing. But again, light doesn't affect everybody, right? Because some people, again, going back to the whole patient or delayed sleep phase, they're very sensitive to light. But there are certainly people that it just does nothing to them, right? There's people that their eyes and their brain completely not sensitive to light, does not make a difference. But the other thing is the idea, which you know, we'll talk about later when we talk about insomnia, is that you want to condition bedroom with sleep only. That every time you walk in there, that the only thing that's going to happen here is sleep, right? You don't want to have other activities, idea that may happen in the bedroom, because over time, if you start having insomnia and you start being awake, you start running into trouble because you're going to start conditioning the bedroom with non-sleep stimulus. Okay, good stuff. Yeah, I, I've got, a, what was it? It's been probably maybe 10 years since I've had a TV in the bedroom. But um, the you mentioned sunglasses and you mentioned the location in your eye where, was it light hits? Yeah, uh, so basically light hits sort of essentially these uh, cells at the back of your on your retina, right? And essentially these, cells and connect into your brain into the suprachiasmatic nucleus so that that's how sort of the light drives your brain to think you know you should be awake so now in the daytime we want that light to hit the back of that that location and now how do sunglasses affect that in the daytime versus maybe wearing sun you know what i'm saying like if you're blocking that right yeah, yeah. no I, I totally get what you're saying so basically the idea is that during the daytime, so this goes back to the idea of this thing called a phase response curve in that, that certain times of the day, light has the most effect. So essentially throughout the day and over our sleep, we have this thing, it's a physiological phenomenon called a temperature nadir. So around 2.3 hours before when we perpetually wake up, that is the lowest body temperature dip that we have. We all have this. So whatever stimulus that we get before or after that temperature drop, the minimum temperature of our body, either it's melatonin or light, will have opposite effects if you have it before versus you have it after. 
So basically, the idea is that if you were to give light before the uh, minimum body temperature point, the temperature nadir, then you push your sleep later, right? You become more delayed sleep. If you give light after the temperature nadir, then you push your sleep earlier. You become more advanced, right? Which is why for teenagers, the idea is that you minimize light before going to bed and you maximize light first thing in the morning, right? And for elderly patients, you do the opposite, right? So you actually want them to have maximum light before going to bed. And I normally say one hour before actually sleeping that you could just dim the lights. And then you actually want to minimize their light first thing in the morning so that, you know, to actually help correct with their phase advanced problems. So the for the light response curves, the idea is that, again, that around bedtime, actually, that's when the light actually has the most effect, right? And then on awakening, that's when the light has the most effect pushing in the other direction. But actually, as you go throughout the day, there's actually, the light actually has less and less effect. So it really depends on what time during the day, really around this temperature dip idea that when the light has the most effect because when you go through all the middle of the day the temp the light doesn't actually really push your direction of your sleep fate either way uh and again similar with melatonin is that you know perpetual bedtime you know about two to three hours before that's when it has the most effect in making you go to bed earlier if you give melatonin after that temperature nadir you could actually make people essentially fall asleep later paradoxically, it's something we never think about, but we don't do this to elderly patients because melatonin is also a little bit sedating. So you don't want people to like stumble around. But there are certain times during the middle of the day where, you know, smack down the middle of the day, if you give melatonin, it probably doesn't do that much in regards to circadian rhythm. So it's really about when you give these stimulus is what time you give them in relation to this idea of this temperature nadir that we all have as part of our circadian rhythm. So dosing of uh, melatonin at particular times, depending on who you are, either elderly or a teenager or middle-aged, and then also exposure to light and when you're exposed to light is going to be super important for circadian rhythm and sleep in general, just a healthy sleep cycle. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, of course, you know, the, the smartphones and the, you know, tablets has completely changed <laughs> <laughs> how old is this now so yeah i mean realistically it just sounds like we didn't evolve this way over millions of years and and now we have this exposure to technology and light that we didn't have when as we evolved oh i, I mean a hundred percent agree right i think you know humans were sort of like the only species that we have essentially dissociated ourselves from this biological clock that's generated by the spin of the earth you know first by invention of electricity and now definitely by sort of these tablets and uh, uh, smartphones. So, and, and, and truthfully, I think sort of even the bigger issue here, actually, often sort of like kids, right? Because, you know, kids are super delayed sleep phase. And, you know, if parents allow them to be up at three o'clock, four o'clock on an iPad, and, and they got to get up at six o'clock, seven o'clock, you know, the next day to study or go to school, right? Like certainly there's major developmental issues with this. And, you know, something that, you know, I think, uh, yes, you know, is definitely becoming a major problem. I'm actually going to send this episode to uh, my neighbor upstairs with her kid running around <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning, yeah. stomping around above my head. <laughs> Nicole, did you have anything to add there? 
my biggest question, because you keep bringing up teenagers, and I think that this is a really important topic because a lot of my clients that have kids that are not just teenagers that are athletes in terms of athletic development, but also just like you mentioned in terms of study in school, a lot of these kids have different school time starts and they change from year to year and they're staying after school to do sports and then they're doing homework late at night and they have a lot of like load in terms of what they're doing every day on top of their academics and then their sports. What type of sleep hygiene schedule would you put a teenager on or do you suggest to teenagers to help them be the best that they can be? I guess that's my question. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. It's certainly a very tough one, right? Because I think many sleep doctors are pushing for a delayed uh, school start time for teenagers. Interesting. Simply because their brain biologically are just saying, you know, I actually want to sleep till nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And again, sort of having to add another iPhone and, uh, you know, you know, or like all the smartphones and the tablets is definitely not helping the situation. Um, So it and and certainly you see this in performance, too. Right. Because, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, there are studies saying that, you know, during COVID, when kids could stay in and sleep later, some of them did better. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, and even with student athletes, right? So, you know, there's actually research saying that like certainly student athletes, a lot of them are sleep deprived, um, right? They, they sleep less than seven hours a day. They have excessive daytime sleepiness that, you know, they can literally like, you know, at the drop of a dime, just want to lie down and fall asleep, right? Yeah. If somebody got a lot sufficient sleep, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. They're falling asleep in class. They're sleeping during study hall, yeah. things like that. It, it, exactly, exactly. It, and I think that certainly, you know, even, you know, especially for student athletes, because a lot of them have sort of like morning training times, right? Or even like morning competitions like that, that often, you know, those days, like, there's studies showing that for sure, uh, athletes with morning training times before those days, they'll just sleep less, right? The night before their training day. And, and of course, you know, with athletes, it's so complicated because they have traveling schedules. They have like sometimes more more work because they have to juggle between sort of their training and, you know, their schoolwork, things like that. Uh, and on top of that, I'm sure there's also the stress of competition as well. So, uh, yeah, so I think that certainly for students, I mean, that's something that many of us has advocated uh, for. And, and I think that, yeah, it's certainly hard. Uh, from, you know, what we can do in the meantime, though, you know, I really just try to tell sort of my patients that are young is that, you know, you really just try to have to block off block off as much light as possible, right? Because especially if you're that type, because, you know, there are teenagers that do not have delayed sleep phase, right? A lot of them actually just, they do go to bed at like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Um, but the ones that are delayed, you know, I, I do, I tell, I give them my uh, sunglasses feel, right? <laughs> or like, you know, you, you wear the darker thing you can wear. You want to, you know, if you want to use your computer to have it on night mode, right? Night mode, do block blue. And you still want to dim it as much as possible. Because again, it is all light, right? So even with sometimes night mode, it's not enough. Because again, we all live on the spectrum. Some people are not sensitive to uh, light at all. Some people are a little bit. Some people are a lot, right? So depending on where you are on that spectrum is really sort of how much you got to do to try to reduce effect of light on your circadian rhythm. Where does caffeine fall into your recommendations for patients? 
so we know that the half-life caffeine is pretty long, right? Like, like five or six hours, depending on what literature you read. So certainly try to avoid caffeine really past like noon, especially if you have like sleeping problems. And again, I think, you know, this is such a spectrum of individuals, right? Because if certainly that is your problem and you have insomnia, you know, you should definitely try to avoid caffeine really just past noon, if not earlier than that, right? Um, but and, and certainly definitely not, you know, caffeine before bedtime. But again, you know, for some people, it just doesn't seem to affect them. So, uh, but but I think, you know, and of course, we'll talk about this when we talk more about insomnia, that there's so many other drivers in insomnia, right? So this is sort of one part of the equation for sure. But there's, you know, it's a very complex subject. So. So let's go into that. Let's get into insomnia and what exactly is perfect segue. What exactly is insomnia and what's the cause of insomnia? So we'll start with what is insomnia, right? Because I'm sure we've all heard of this term and we all have probably a friend or, you know, we all know somebody or themselves have insomnia. So insomnia is essentially the difficulty with falling asleep, staying asleep or waking up too early in the morning, despite having adequate opportunity to sleep. And sort of, you know, the uh, American Academy essentially has added sort of these artificial definitions that if you have the three days a week, then it's, uh, and three months, uh, for more than three months, then it's considered chronic insomnia. And of course, this needs to also impair your daytime function. You have to essentially make your day miserable. Um, and of course, this can be, you know, associated with another sleep disorder or sorry, it cannot be caused by another sleep disorder or a psychiatric or medical disorder or due to some kind of sub, uh, substance use. So insomnia is actually super prevalent, right? So when they did a bunch of surveys, 30% of the U.S. population at some point over the one year has reported some kind of nighttime insomnia symptom with, you know, can't fall asleep or can't stay asleep. If you had daytime symptoms, it becomes 9 to 15%. And 5% of the population has a full diagnosis of insomnia. So if you think about it, right, that's huge. <laughs> like very few diseases in society have a 5% prevalence. And of course, you know, as we know, all know with COVID and the mental stress that's put on everybody, sort of this is kind of went through the roof, right? So, um, and, you know, and the last thing I'll add to this is that insomnia is essentially a public health crisis, right? It has a massive personal burden on individuals and a massive social economic burden and that people either can go to work or they go to work, but they can't do their best. How do we differentiate between insomnia and circadian rhythm disorder? Oh, good, uh, good point. So, yes. So this is something that's really important not to miss because, if we treat one as opposed to others, simply the treatment's not gonna work, right? So I would say the simplest way that I uh, sort of ask my patients is, because in both cases, let's say they're circadian delayed, they can't fall asleep. So then I say, well, on the weekend, can you sleep in? Because the delayed circadian phase, you know, your teenagers, yeah, they can't fall asleep at 10, but they can fall asleep at 1 o'clock in the morning. But then the uh, weekend, they have no problem sleeping until like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. But then some patients, doesn't matter, weekend, weekday, they're up at 6 o'clock in the morning, doesn't matter what time they fall asleep. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. So what are the uh, causes? What's going on yeah. like 
physiologically what's going on in the body or the brain or wherever it's happening? So insomnia is actually extremely complex and super fascinating, right? Because ideas that for some reason, you know, the natural process of brain that generates sleep just doesn't seem to do this. So the conventional thinking of insomnia is sort of the three Ps, the predisposing factor, the precipitating factor, and the perpetuating factor. So the idea of the predisposing factor is that something about a patient with insomnia, something about their brain, that genetically, the way that's wired, that just does not generate sleep well, right? The idea is that if sleep is like some kind of glue that glues your sleep together, the, the sleep glue uh, just doesn't seem to be as much as patients that does not have insomnia. So some kind of genetic neurological wiring. But as you guys all know, you know, most patients with insomnia didn't always have insomnia. When they're younger, they didn't have this problem, right? At some point during their life, they started having this problem. So that's where this precipitating factor comes in. The idea that there's some kind of stressful trigger that started this negative cycle. So often this could be like a family event, a school event or work, some kind of traumatic, stressful event. And all of a sudden, this patient or this uh, individual has acute insomnia, right? For the first time in their life, they go to their bed, they can't fall asleep. I'm sure everybody, including you guys, at some point had this, where just like first you can't fall asleep because things are really stressful. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so then what happens? Then it comes to the question, what do you do when you have a night where you can't fall asleep? Because often the intuitive thing to do, that, which kind of makes sense, is that you want to spend more time in bed because you want to increase sleep opportunity. Right, you have more time in bed, you have more chance to fall asleep. That sounds intuitive. But what happens is that this becomes a maladaptive behavior in that every time you're in bed, you're not going to be able to fall asleep every time when you spend a lot of time in bed. Right? Sometimes you'll succeed and fall asleep. Other times you'll be in bed, but you'll be stressed out. You'll be staring at the ceiling. So this becomes a conditioning problem. So the example that we kind of Parallel this is the Pavlovian conditioning, sort of the experiment with a dog and the and the bell and a piece of steak, right? It's that, you know, if you give a dog a piece of meat and you ring a bell, you do this, you know, five or 10 times, and then you just ring the bell without the piece of meat, the dog's going to anticipate the meat and it'll just start salivating, right? It will salivate to the ring of the bell. So the problem with spending too much time in bed and eventually spending a lot of wake and stress time in bed is that patient starts conditioning the idea of the bedroom with the awakening stressful response. So the bedroom is no longer a place you walk and you fall asleep. Now it's a place you're sitting there angry, agitated, and staring at the ceiling. In addition to this, it's not just a psychological conditioning where you sit there, you know, you, you think to yourself, oh God, I'm back here again. I was here yesterday. I was here last week. I'm staring at the ceiling. Why is this happening? Right. All of a sudden, you're just feeling more agitated, more annoying. But it's also physiological conditioning, right? Because you know, if you can't fall asleep in the middle of the night, and this has happened before, all of a sudden the room feels warmer, right? Why is the room warmer? Like all of a sudden, your blood pressure feels a bit higher, your heart rate feels a bit higher. So you have an actual physiological conditioning to this response as well. And even we do sort of a lot of these very interesting experiments to look at brain chemistry. When you become so conditioned, 
the patient's brain essentially goes into this hyper vigilant or hyper arousal state where it's just sort of 24 seven, you know, more likely to be awake. Right. So when you actually, for example, they have these really interesting experiments a couple of years ago, where if you take a sleeping patient with no insomnia, you make a little knock on the door, or like a little sound like that. Right. And you can see the brain waves move a little bit. You get a little blip on the brain wave. Right. But they'll go back to sleep. They do not wake up whatsoever. If you take an insomnia patient, you do the exact same sound, the same knocking sound, their brainwave reactivity is actually much, much higher. So it intuitively changes the sensory processing of these patients, even when they're asleep. And of course, on the psychological side, right, if you take somebody who has no sleeping problems, every time you go to your bedroom, sleep is an automatic response, right? You don't think about it. It's, it's not, it, you just walk in, you snooze, that's it. But if you take a patient with insomnia, they pay attention the second they walk into their bedroom. They think about it, they're like, can I fall asleep tonight? And then all of a sudden with that comes the intention to sleep. They're trying to sleep and now they're making an effort to fall asleep. They're doing deep breathing exercises. They're thinking in their brain, I'm here again. So the problem is that whenever you're having the intention to sleep, that that paradoxically actually wakes you up. Because when you're trying to do something, it paradoxically wakes you up. So as you guys can imagine, it's this perpetual cycle time over time that drives these patients into this chronic state of insomnia. And it's both a psychological sort of cycle and conditioning, but certainly over time, the neurological wiring also changes as well. So what's the solution? How do we fix that? So the first line treatment for this is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So this is essentially behavioral therapy, right? The idea is to try to unwind some of this conditioning response that patients get. Essentially, patients with insomnia almost like hate or they, or they get triggered by their bedroom right? Because they've been there over and over. It's like such a negative response. In fact, in some cases, they're not, it's not even the bedroom. It's like the idea of sleep just triggers them, right? The idea of trying to fall asleep become negative stimu uh, stimulus. So the sort of two main sort of um, component of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that has the strongest evidence, essentially stimulus control on sleep restriction. And then of course, on top of other things like uh, relaxation training, you know, cognitive restructuring and sleep hygiene. So with stimulus control, this is something that I really recommend everybody because this is pretty harmless, uh, but it's counterintuitive, right? So what this basically means that anytime you're awake, you should not be in bed, right? So the idea is that, you know, that you read this in places that says, you know, bedrooms for sleep and sex only anytime you're awake, shouldn't be in bed. So I do always make the effort to explain to my patients why they do this because it sounds counterintuitive. Because as you know, most patients with insomnia, they can't fall asleep, they stay there and they're trying to hope that they can catch any sleep that they can get. So they'll be in bed for like two hours, four hours at a time, like, you know, eyes open looking at the ceiling. So what stimulus control is that anytime you realize you are awake, either that takes two minutes, you just realize you're awake or it takes 10 minutes, you need to get out of your bedroom. So this could be at the beginning of the night when you try to fall asleep, or in the middle of the night, uh, or, or you know, at the end of the night, which, in which case you just get up, right? But at the beginning of the night or in the middle of the night, you gotta get out of your bedroom, go to another living space. 
that you have not that you know that's a pleasant place for you right the idea is that you've not conditioned this living space or sort of you know some kind of negative stimulus go to another living space and do something that's pleasant you know like listening to music or podcast or this podcast and uh and but not exciting right you don't want to excite yourself because then you're bright awake again but you do want to do something pleasant because you don't want to punish yourself every time you can't fall asleep right you have to tell yourself it's okay i can't fall asleep you do something pleasant but it also in dim light because bright light will change your circadian rhythm to do something pleasant in dim light and only until you're sleepy again do you go back to your bedroom and try to fall asleep again and of course, you know, if they ask, what if I can't fall asleep the second time? Well, you repeat this routine over and over because the idea is that you just want to avoid having prolonged periods of wake time in bed. Okay. It's very interesting because a lot of my clients that don't, that get up in the middle of the night and, or can't sleep, get up in the middle of the night, you know where they end up? In the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's something but, that makes them feel good, right? It makes them yeah. feel good, but there's also more light when they, I don't know, I'm just This, this is of, true. I agree. Of that type of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Where do medications fall into this? Like yeah. in terms of, mm-hmm. so I've heard some things and I've never actually looked into it because it's just not my field, but that like, so, there are some medications that don't put you to sleep. They actually just knock you out. Is that true? Uh, so I guess the hypnotic medications. So, Okay. So essentially, there's all this new literature now looking at what's called sleep uh, insomnia phenotyping. Um, the idea is that not all insomnia are the same, right? So the insomnia is a very heterogeneous condition and the idea that there's a lot of different physiology that causes insomnia, but the final outcome looks the same. They can't fall asleep or they can't stay asleep. But the cost itself could be very different. And subsequently, you know, the brain chemistry for these patients could actually be quite different. Some of the new literature are suggesting the idea is that you have, you know, at least broadly dividing insomnia uh, into two major categories, sort of insomnia with sort of essentially short objective sleep duration versus sort of normal sleep duration. The idea is that you have two patients that come to you. They both have the exact same complaints. Doctor, I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep. One of them actually objectively sleeps about the same number of hours as a somebody who doesn't have insomnia, where the other one, they don't. They, their brain only you know, generates like four or five hours of sleep. The one that objectively sleeps the same, they'll be in bed for a long period of time. But then if you add the total number of hours of time to step through the day between the bed and napping and stuff like that, it could be like seven hours, seven and a half hours. So the thought is that perhaps these two group of patients are actually different type of phenotype or different type of patients and that you know there's a bunch of study look into this and it's kind of shown that on one hand sort of the objective short duration insomnia patients they're the one that have sort of more cardiovascular diseases they have more neurocognitive issues like things like dementia they're you know pituitary uh, adrenal or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or their cortisol level, which is like twenty four seven ramped up. Uh, whereas the overall normal sleep duration patients, they're more of a like a psychological phenotype. So they're more sort of neuroticism. They have like more maladaptive behaviors or coping skill issues. So you know the thought is that perhaps on one hand, sort of the normal sleep duration 
patients, these are the patients that are more likely to respond to therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So the one of which I talked about is the stimulus control, but of course there's these all these other components like sleep restriction, which condenses your sleep or relaxation therapy and things like that. Whereas that the objective short sleep duration patients, perhaps something about their brain, they just cannot generate that much sleep. So maybe some of these patients, you know, in addition to having a go at the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, that perhaps C medication may be playing, that may play more of a role in these patients. Is that something that you generally want to avoid or you want to do it temporarily? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's also a good question. So I think Every patient with insomnia that comes to me, uh, they should always have a go at cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. But certainly, you know, I do have patients that come to me and already on a whole bunch of sleeping medications, right? You know, the idea, it would be ideal, obviously, to just in any field of medicine to minimize, you know, medication burden to every patient. But I think the reality, and I think all sleep physicians, and of course, many family physicians that have a lot of patients with insomnia knows this that it's not possible, right? So it's really, we try to take a harm reduction approach, right? What is the combination of sort of these behavioral therapy that we can help the patients? And then they have to be on certain medications, you know, you try to pick medications that are safest for them or the medication that has another side effect profile that can also help them, right? So for example, you know, if there's somebody who also have, uh, you know, like they're very, very skinny and they need to gain some weight, like my Parkinson's patient, like some of the uh, medication could actually help you gain a bit of weight, right? But of course, paradoxically, for my sleep apnea patient that are, they have, they have, they need to lose some weight, that would not be a good idea, right? So the idea is that you're really trying to also match sort of whatever is safest and, and also try to maybe hit two or three bursts of the same stone. And of course, the other component of this harm reduction approach is really, you know, if you're not helping some of these patients, I definitely have patients that come to my clinic, they're sort of having a couple of drinks before they go to bed, right? <laughs> because it, it sort of like helps them fall asleep or they're doing other things, you know, that, that helps them sleep. So really, you know, you're trying to find what is the best way to sort of help your patients and sort of try to sort of walk between the lines sometimes. So <laughs> I gotcha. And now you mentioned sleep apnea. So yeah. let's switch gears and talk about what sleep apnea is, who's at risk for sleep apnea, and what are some of the dangers around having sleep apnea? Yeah, absolutely. So the word apnea essentially means no breathing, right? So sleep apnea, I tell my patients, this is where you have difficulty breathing when you're sleeping. So as a result, you're not getting good air in. And at one point, your brain says, wake up, we got to breathe. This could happen many times throughout the night. Uh, they're called, often they're micro awakenings where the patient has no recollection that they have woken up. You know, I have some patients that literally tells me, doctor, I do not wake up in the middle of the night. And, you know, you look at these micro awakenings and they have like 500, <laughs> right? So, um, and of course, the problem with each one of these awakenings is that it's a sympathetic drive, right? Because you essentially are, your brain is so deprived of oxygen that your brain is saying, okay, wake up, right? So you have a little bit of a blood pressure bump, you know, your heart rate bumps, you know, so... Um, so this, when this happens many, many, many times through the night, you know, in the short run, you know, it fragments the patient's sleep. The next day they can often feel kind of like crummy, very sleepy during the day. You know, they, they snore a lot. So I get a lot of referrals because that bed partner told them to show up or else. <laughs> uh, Makes but of sense. course, the, in the long run, it increases things like risk of heart disease, 
uh, stroke, high blood pressure, and dementia. So certainly, you know, sleep apnea, there's, you know, over a, a billion cases around the world uh, is heavily underdiagnosed and undertreated. Well, pro pro probably partly because, I mean, how many people, I don't know that many people that have seen a sleep doctor. Fair enough. Right. That Or that have done a sleep test. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think people are just going through life and not doing it. Now, weight is a big risk factor, like obesity and just weight in general, I think, because I know it, I, you know, I came from a background in bodybuilding where I used to be a competitive bodybuilder. And I think a lot of the professional, the, the bigger guys, they bodybuilders, powerlifters, you know, you would generally think, oh, well, they look like they're healthy, but they can suffer from sleep apnea because they're heavier. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So a lot of this actually just has to do with, you know, like when you're a bigger guy, like your airways narrowed, right? So sleep apnea itself is actually very complex. In fact, I tell my patients, you know, this is not so much as a disease as a symptom, right? Just like how fever is a symptom, you know, like a hundred or you know, a thousand things can cause fever. Many things can cause sleep apnea, right? But certainly one of them is if you have a more narrowed airway, you're not getting good air in, right? That's very simple geometry. So of course, if you're somebody who weighs a lot and is, you know, fat or adipose tissue versus muscle, that's certainly worse, right? But, you know, if just in general, even if you're, you know, very, very muscular, but you weigh a lot, you're definitely at a higher risk for sure when your neck, neck diameter is larger. So uh, I think, you know, one study showed that, you know, in uh, I think it was NFL where like, you know, if you do a bunch of, uh, or, or just generally football, sorry, that, you know, especially sort of the bigger guys, you know, if you do like a, a study that, you know, over 20% of like, uh, of these uh, athletes have sleep apnea. Yeah. And it's basically, uh, I, I've heard it described as you're basically dying in your sleep, like you're killing yourself slowly <laughs> over, over well, years. You're not breathing. So that can't yeah. be a good thing. Yeah, so absolutely. Oh, and the other thing I would also add is, you know, like a lot of patients present atypically, right? So women often present very atypically compared to guys. Because for guys, we kind of think, you know, somebody who's overweight snores a lot. But often women don't snore. You know, they, instead of presenting at being sleepy, super, you know, super sleepy all day, they'll present with insomnia. So often a lot of these symptoms can get missed. And, you know, at the same time, though, we also sort of know that, like I said, because sleep apnea is such a heterogeneous disorder, that people really present very differently. Because I have patients that I see that, you know, they'll wake up like a couple hundred times or they have these like micro awakenings a couple hundred times a night. They're only sent there because their spouse basically told them or else, right? But they feel great. <laughs> so I really tell my patients, because they're like, no, doctor, I, I sleep great. In fact, I can sleep at the drop of a dime during the day if I wanted to. But otherwise, my brain feels great. You know, I tell them two things, right? A, you shouldn't be able to sleep at the drop of a dime, even if your brain feels great. And B, it's like, you know, you kind of got to think of this like high blood pressure, right? If you have high blood pressure overnight, going from like 130 to 180, you'll feel really crummy the next day. But if you get chronic high blood pressure over 10 years, you will feel nothing until you get a stroke or a heart attack. Sleep apnea for the patient that have no symptoms, kind of the same thing. You will feel nothing, you know, for this very lucky selected population, because certainly a lot of them feel terrible. <laughs> but for the lucky selected population, you might not feel as much, but certainly in the long run is doing a number on your system. That sounds pretty scary. I have to say sleep apnea is one of the things that uh, over the years has 
been it's it just sounds incredibly scary let me ask you this the last thing i want to touch up on is wearable technology so i i started wearing the apple watch to sleep and it tells me and i've heard kind of anecdotally people would compare like the apple watch to let's say the whoop or they'll compare it to a fitbit um and the apple watch actually tells me that i get very little deep sleep however i've heard people people's kind of testimonials on that versus a fitbit where the fitbit gives them a higher read on their deep sleep so where are we in terms of the technology and the accuracy of it yeah um no that, that's a good question there's actually a lot of papers coming out sort of in the recent years right discussing this right so maybe i'll just very briefly talk about how these things work so maybe that can explain some of sort of how where we are with the technology so a part of sort of a bunch of these wearables, I can't speak for all of them, uh, essentially, and what's called actigraphy. So what actigraphy does essentially is a motion sensor, right? The idea is that when we're sleeping, we're not moving. When we're awake, we're moving, right? So it kind of averages now an amount of movement that you do. Some of them sort of, you know, and, and the idea is that like to try to predict with a like proprietary algorithm, if you're moving or not, are you sleepy or are you sleeping or not, right? The other component of this is what's called sort of this big term, cardiopulmonary coupling. It basically means that it looks at your heart, like electrical activity. So it look at the rhythm and the rate of your heartbeat. And that changes depending on you're in a sympathetic sleep state or a parasympathetic sleep state. So different sleep states, that changes. In addition, as you can imagine, when we breathe in and out, our chest moves up and down. So the axis of the direction of the electricity in our heart also moves up and down as we breathe. So that then gets converted into essentially the amplitude of sort of the electrical activity that we can sense. When we take all this information and we do something called peripheral arterial tonometry, essentially means that you're looking at a blood vessel on your finger, right? Peripheral artery, the artery on your finger. You could basically, by counting the beats through this, uh, by looking at the artery of your finger, so that basically looks at the rate and rhythm of your heart and the amplitude or how high these beats are, that's sort of the thought of the prediction of sort of the axis and, and the prediction of the amplitude of each beat kind of thing. So the idea is that to use this technology in addition to the actigraphy to predict what sleep stage or what sleep stage you're in and whether you're sleeping or not, right? So this technology has definitely gone a long way in the last 10 years for sure. Um, so there's definitely FDA approved devices and sort of commercial devices, right? As we all know. So there's some differences between these devices. So one is, you know, it's often devices use different lights. So often the medically approved, uh, FDA approved devices use red light. So red light is actually more accurate, whereas the commercial devices uses green light. But the green light are actually, they're less accurate because they don't go as deep in the skin, right? Because you think about the wavelengths of red light versus green. So green doesn't go as deep, but green is better for movement artifacts, which, you know, when you wear this every day, you know, <laughs> like you're moving around, Green is actually better for that. Uh, so that's one. The other thing is that, you know, all these 
sort of devices are basically validated off one population of people, right? So it depending on, of course, you know, the age of the population, most of them are validated off a healthy population, you know, within a body weight range, a skin color. So often, so we know, for example, patients or, you know, individuals with darker skin, often the light penetrance is not as good. So your accuracy may be lower, right? And the other thing is, you know, it can't tell what else is going on in your bed, right? So if you have other conditions, like for example, if you have this condition where you have a lot of limb movements called periodic limb movements to sleep and your arms and legs are moving a little bit when you're sleeping, or if you have like a bed partner that's rolling around or a cat is walking around, right? It can't tell that. So there is still a lot of artifact that's going on that simply can't take out. Certainly, I think the technology has gone a long way. So basically, I kind of tell my patients, because sometimes they bring this up to me and they say, you know, like, doctor, this is my like, you know, Fitbit or my Apple Watch, right? And, you know, and I always say, I think these devices, and I say this with a lot of caution, <laughs> because I don't want people to hear them. They all just run to their doctor and be like, this is what my Fitbit is. But I think these devices are reasonable, basic screening tool in the sense that, you know, I think, you know, when patients bring this to my clinic, I'll have a, a look. But certainly, you know, we know that they're prone to artifacts for sure. And the other thing I would also say is that, you know, I've definitely had friends of mine who's called me after they got a cold for two days. They're like, you know, Richard, what I do, you know, my, my Apple Watch say my sleep is so fragmented. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I want to just say like a one-off is okay. Like we all have one-offs either because of you or because of technology or you're kind of sick. You know, it's like, you really want to sort of look at bigger trends, right? So I think, you know, it, and of course, I think in the future, these technology will just keep evolving and keep sort of getting better and better because sort of the conventional way to see whether you're asleep or not, we have electrodes on a patient's head, right? When they're in the sleep lab. But, you know, so the, these technology, the idea that they're replicating that without having the burden of having stickers on somebody's head. So certainly there's still issues, but... I think that, you know, over time, they will get better. And of course, you know, I sorry for this very protracted answer, but the, uh, the, you know, FDA approved devices, you know, I think that certainly, you know, they can diagnose things like sleep apnea or other things where, you know, like you would just want to look at the quality of a patient's sleep. They can actually tell you. But I think, you know, we also have to be cautioned again, like if it's negative, but you have a very high clinical suspicion there is something's going on, then you, so you certainly need to do more investigations. So things like an in-lab sleep study. Interesting. Richard, okay. thank so you very good. much. Thank you very much. It was yeah. very informative, uh, really super well done episode. I'm, I'm going to love publishing this one. And um, well, I guess I'll, I'll end with where we find you. You're mainly on Twitter, right? Yeah. So I have started this Twitter account over a year ago. Um, it's called Sleepy Neurodoc. And basically, it's really meant for other sort of sleep professionals. So I really post very interesting cases. But I'm also starting an Instagram account really just for sleep education. The idea is that to, you know, really sort of talk about sleep, the different things that we can do, and really just try to help everybody sleep better with the exact same handle. So, Okay, so at Sleepy Neurodoc on Instagram, content to come soon. And... 
<laughs> I'm assuming you have some content on Twitter already. So go Absolutely. check him out. Dr. Richard Liu at Sleepy Neurodoc on Twitter and Instagram. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 